following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. The right workspace is more than just square footage. It's an incubator of achievement, a magnet for talent. Your workforce unleashed. For 160 years, Savills has been bringing real intelligence to global real estate, ensuring not just any space, but the perfect workspace. Because the most important dimension of a building is the human one. Savills. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. Hi, everyone. This is Laurel, executive producer for Forbes Podcasts. For today's episode of the Forbes Sports Money Podcast, we're broadcasting an interview Mike did with David Robinson at a Thusio-sponsored Forbes event. Robinson is an NBA and Olympic champion, NBA All-Star, and Hall of Famer. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. As somebody who watched a lot of basketball, when I was asked to do this event, you know, I thought it was like a trick question, uh, you know. But the thing about David is, when I, when I think about him, and this is particularly true because I watched him as a New York resident and, and fan of the New York teams, you know, I'm, I'm being serious here, is that, you know, you, there are some things you can't take the calipers to and measure by going on Google and looking at stats. You know, you, you could see the two-time NBA championship. You could see the Olympic gold medals, the MVP, the Hall of Fame, all of that stuff. Uh, but as far as Mike Ozanian is concerned, uh, none of that measures anything about what this man is. Uh, and if I had to put it in one word, as, as the late, great Jim Michaels used to say to me all the time, he was a <coughs> great editor at Forbes for many years, keep it short, I would use the word class. Uh, and that's how I would describe this man right here. So, uh, David, it's an honor to be here with you, and uh, thank, thank you. you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. I'm, I'm glad we can share, and hopefully you guys have some good questions, and I can address all the things you guys want to talk about tonight. One of the things I, I, in reading about you that I didn't know was that when you went to the Naval Academy, uh, it wasn't to play basketball primarily. I mean, you go in there for engineering, and you kind of had a growth spurt there in, in, yeah, in terms of height. a little growth spurt, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, most people don't grow six inches in college, but um, yeah, now I, you know, I picked Navy because it was a great engineering school, and I, it's, it's really what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and you know, I started off, I ended up being a civil engineer in the Navy for my two years while I was serving. Uh, but, uh, but while I was there, our basketball team got a little bit better, and uh, the, the doors opened for, uh, for basketball. So uh, it was, it, yeah, it was a, I was very fortunate to be able to end up as a professional basketball player. Your dad went to the Naval Academy. No, he didn't. No, he, he was didn't. in the Navy. In he, the had, Navy. he enlisted in the Navy coming out of uh, high school, and he had actually dropped out of college, enlisted in, uh, in the Navy, and, and really had a, 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 a very good experience in the military. I had grown up around the Navy bases, so, so I, my grandfather was in the Army, um, and, and so uh, I, I grew up around service, military service, and, and I always had a high regard for what that meant for our country, and, and so big part of me wanted to serve. So it wasn't like something like, you know, they forced 
your dad forced you to go to the academy. This was something no. you really wanted to do. No, actually, my dad was trying to get me to go somewhere else because <laughs> he, he knew that I had the, uh, the service obligation after I graduated. And, and my dad in high school, you talk about somebody with some foresight, some vision. My dad actually told me in high school, he said, and I was 6'7", I weighed 172 pounds. And he told me in high school, he said, you're going to play professional basketball. And, and you know, I said, Dad, you're out of your mind. <laughs> so there's, there's no way I'm, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't picture myself um, in that scenario. Uh, but, but, you know, Dad always believed that. And I, and I think that was part of the reason he, he, he didn't push me one way or the other, but I could kind of tell he wanted me to go to another school because of the service obligation. Uh, but, but I felt like the Naval Academy was going to be a great challenge academically, and I felt like it was going to put me in the best position to be successful in the future. What was it like when you got drafted by the Spurs? Wow, uh, amazing. You, you know, you don't – it's hard to see yourself in that position. I watched the draft, you know. Just, just the other day I watched the draft, and, and, and still it doesn't register to me that I, I was that guy. Um, it's uh, it's incredible honor. Uh, there was – you know, coming in as the number one player, there's a lot of pressure, and you feel like, you, you, you know, the, the, the team is – betting their future on you almost <laughs> and and so uh you know san antonio had come off some really tough years uh we um i mean the year before i came we were 20 and six, 21 and 61 or something um so yeah there's a tremendous amount of pressure coming in and 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 i remember my first time coming into the locker room and it was the year before i played and I walked into the locker room, and I go to shake hands with everybody, and I just got this feeling that everybody looked at me like, who the heck do you think you are? <laughs> You're going to come in here and change things? And, and so I, I felt that pressure almost immediately that, hey, I'm supposed to have this great impact, and I'm this young kid. I'm dumb. I don't know anything. I'm coming into a league, and uh, I, I'm just trying to make a difference. Was there any one player who took you under his wing and sort of said, you know, follow um, me. I'll show you what to do? Um, you know, I, I, we had guys who were, um, you know, some, some veteran guys. Um, Terry Cummings had, had played uh, on some pretty good teams, the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and, and so Terry really tried to kind of help me get adjusted to the league. And, and he was a big, strong, he was 6'9", 260, and just a, um, a, kind of an enforcer. And so, uh, so he took me under his wing a little bit and, and, and tried to help me figure out what I needed to figure out. But, you know, like I said, with that type of pressure on you, it's really on you. You have to figure it out. You have to go into that scenario and, and figure out what does this team need. I couldn't be every, anybody else, right? Everybody's saying, oh, you should be like Michael Jordan or you should be like Magic or you should be like – I can't – I'm not those guys. And, and, you know, with my personality coming from the military, they all, everybody thought I was this big nerd, and I was. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I couldn't try to be something I wasn't. I couldn't come in and act like, you know, I was, I was the man. I, I had to come in and, um, and kind of figure out how do I put each guy in a position where they could be successful. I mean, that's what I learned in the Navy, right? You, you learn, hey, you're going to work with a team. You're going to put guys in positions where they can be successful. That's what you're going to do. And so that was the way I approached the locker room. How do I make this guy better? How do I make this guy better? How do I help these guys be, be more successful? I can take all the pressure. Everyone's going to either blame me if we lose or whatever, but how do I help them and make their situations easier? 
And the Spurs back then, when you first got there, were not the franchise they are today. You know, the, sort of the NBA <laughs> model franchise of teamwork. And I mean, I believe you had like seven head coaches during your time yeah, there. Yeah, we, we went through a little uh, transition period. Uh, it's probably my fault. I got half of those guys fired. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, we had a lot. To, we had a lot of issues. I mean, you, you think about it. The first year, my first team that I was on, I, I think we had three guys that went to prison from that from that team. <laughs> So to say it wasn't the ideal scenario is probably a little bit of an understatement, yeah. When would you say was the point where the team started to really turn it around and say, you know, we're on the right path? Um, When we got Tim Duncan, that was a big moment. Um, Yeah, you know, adding talent always makes a difference. But but even I could see that first year, you could see little signs that the culture was going to change. I mean, we we, we brought in – in 89 was my first year, we drafted Sean Elliott, who was another, you know, really upbeat, positive kid and a, and a very team-oriented, team-focused kid. And, and, and you could start to see that, okay, we, you know, we're, we're starting to add those pieces that are going to change the mentality, change the culture. We were a small market team. You think about being in a, in a tough situation. We were a small market team. We had n- no free agents wanted to come to San Antonio. Um, you know, the, there was a threat that the team was going to move because, you know, our corporate support was really struggling. Um, and, and, and we had to build a team from scratch, literally from scratch. And so my thing was we need to start in this locker room. We need to start with culture, right? We need to get guys to buy in because ownership thought one thing, management thought one thing, players thought one thing. It was a, it was a, it was a mess. Nobody was on the same page. And, and I remember the fir- when I first got there, the, co- the, the ownership was they wanted to increase our ticket sales, season ticket sales. So they said, hey, you know, David, would you go on this little 10-city um, tour? It's a caravan. We'll go through, you know, South Texas in, in, in July? Are you kidding me? Am I going on a South Texas tour in July? But, you know, I, I, me being the guy, I'm, I'm thinking, sure, absolutely, I'll go. I'll go to all these cities. I'll do all the things you want me to do, and we'll build a fan base and I went back in the locker room, and the guys were like, what are you doing, man? Why are you doing that? They're not going to pay you for that. And I thought, well, isn't, isn't it better if we get more fans? And like, like, shouldn't we help this situation? And, and the guys were like, oh, well, yeah, man, they're just they're not, they're going to they're gonna use you until they, you know, you're not good, and then they're going to get rid of you. So they don't really care about you. And I thought, you talk about dysfunctional. Wow, this is dysfunctional. I'm like, well, look, we got to get on the same page. We got to get on the same page with our coaches, with our, with our management, and with our owner. And, and so that was the challenge over the next 10, 15 years, is to figure out how do we get everybody on the same page. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Forbes Sports Money Podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and you need to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to lifelock.com. Use promo code Forbes for 10% off. Was, uh, how important was it uh, for Tim Duncan to be on the same page with you in terms of bringing the rest of the team over? Yeah, that, that was the easy part. Tim, Tim is, uh, I mean, you all saw what he did on the court as a player, a phenomenal player. But, you know, to be honest with you, he's even a, a more phenomenal man. Um, unfortunately, the public doesn't really get to see that side of him as much, but brilliant guy. Tim is, he, 
he has one of the quickest learning curves of anybody I've ever seen. And, um, and, and, and he, he, but he has this humble attitude, like he really wants to learn, right? When you get somebody who comes in and they're like, teach me everything. What can I, what can I learn? I mean, the kid was already pretty good. When, when I was in, I played on the Olympic team in, a, in uh, well, the, the dream team in 92. No, 96 team. I played with the 96 team. And, and so we played exhibition um, games against college guys. And Tim was on one of those teams. And so on that 96 team, we had me, Shaq, and Akeem Olajuwon. And so you imagine you're a college kid. You're coming out in an exhibition game. You got to play against the three of us. And Tim just went to work. I mean, Tim, he had 22 points and 10 boards or something like that. But it was, it was easy. He just made it look so easy. And, and I thought to myself, man, that guy is going to be very good. He was smooth. He couldn't really jump or anything. But the guy, could, he, he had all the skill set and everything. And, um, and I thought, wow, that guy's going to be really good, not really knowing that a year later we were going to draft this guy. And so when we drafted him, I, just, I remember just snickering to myself thinking, oh, my God, people do not know what we just got. This guy is going to just blow people away. He's amazing. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, Tim lived up to, you know, every expectation. When people look at certain sports teams and they say, you know, like the Spurs and, you know, there are others as well. When they win championships, they use the term, you know, they put their ego aside, the players, you know, and focus on team. Is that something that comes from the players generally or is it top down from the management? Um, well, first of all, I don't think people put their egos aside ever. So <laughs> that's, that's not true. Um, you learn how to work together. You know, you learn how to. You know, in, in order to be a championship team, you're going to learn how to help somebody else be successful. That's one. If you look at LeBron James, that's where he's grown the most, right? He used to be. He's always been a great player, but now he helps. He puts those other guys in a position where they can be successful, and he's learned how to help them. Uh, and so I think you know, it's if you look at that Cleveland team, you know, there's no lack of egos on that team. And they managed to win a championship last year um, against all odds. They were down 3-1. No one gave them a chance to win it. And they were able to put it together. But, but really, it, 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 it comes down to how much are you willing to sacrifice, right? How much are you willing to put everyone else in a position where they can be successful? And, and that's really, you know, where Golden State fell apart, right? You, you, you get a guy suspended, then the... the whole series turns around the momentum goes in the opposite direction and then it's hard when you I mean you guys anybody who's played sports or played golf or played any sport you know once things start going against you man it's hard to turn it back around and so you don't want that ball rolling in the wrong direction and they got it rolling in the wrong direction so you know that's what Cleveland did better than Golden State last year they 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 put their egos aside enough to 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 come together and and that's what any championship team has to do um is to is to is to figure out how to help each other, and you know, right now Golden State's the best in the league at that. The, you know, those guys enjoy playing together. They they put them they put each other in a position to be successful. They help each other all the time. They're rooting for each other. It's just a great environment. Steve Kerr has 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 you know taken what Mark Jackson did and even taken it to another level. As you look at how the games evolved uh, since you left the NBA, what what do you see? Wow, lots of change. I mean, the game is, it's like everything else, right? In our society, you look at how technology is changing our lives so quickly and people don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that's what it looks like in the NBA right now. You're looking at all these young kids coming out of college, far too young. Um, well, I won't say that. That's not fair. 
they're coming out of college, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable opportunity to play in the NBA. And, and they're taking it earlier than ever before. Now, I've, I've always been an advocate of, you know, grow up, mature, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna build your reputation and build your name, do it in a safer environment, right? College is a great, if you're at Duke, stay at Duke. Shoot, you're gonna play on TV, you're gonna be, you're gonna have opportunity, it's amazing. You're gonna make the money, don't worry about the money. But that's easier said than done, right? You say, don't worry about the money. Yeah, I'm worried about the money. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an, an amazing thing. So, so, you know, guys are in a rush to get to the league and they're in a rush to get their career started. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of those guys, their careers are going to be short because they're, they're not prepared. They're not mentally and emotionally and physically prepared. And, uh, and, and it's a big jump. I, 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 you know, I always tell these kids when I talk to them, look, in high school, you were the biggest, strongest, fastest guy. This is simple. It was 90% physical. Then you get to college, it starts to even out a little bit. And then you get to the pros, it's 90% mental. Everyone is big, strong, and fast. So you have no advantage there. Now you've got to be mentally tougher than the next guy. You've got to own that guy. When you step out on the floor, I remember my first few games in the league, man, I'd come out there and, you know, Carl Malone, I see this huge elbow flying to my face. I'm like, whoa, hey, hey, what are you doing? You know, and Carl's like, he's like a big dog peeing on his territory. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, who are you, young fella? You know, and, and I just remember thinking, okay, this is a different deal. This is not like any other thing I've done. I, like, I now have to, I have to assert myself, right? I have to walk out on the court with a different mentality, right? I, I, gotta, I gotta go out here and I gotta own this court, uh, because they don't respect me unless I do that. And so uh, it, it was a learning experience, man. It, gets, it becomes so, so mental at that stage, and, and that's really the challenge. So these young kids coming in early, they're not, it's not to their advantage to, you know, to leave college. You're 18 years old and 19 years old, and you know, you're still a little kid physically, and you're a little kid mentally. And, and, and so really... That's a challenge. And so, but the league's going to adjust to that. And these young guys, it's going to take them four, five, six years. But they'll figure it out. Just like Kobe Bryant took them a little while. He figured it out. You know, all these guys, Kevin Garnett, took them a few years. You know, Kevin Garnett ran up against the wall. We were, we were playing Minnesota. We used to beat them like a drum. And, and so he, it took him a long time to figure out what, what is it going to take to be successful. And, uh, and so it's not going to be any different for these young kids now. It's going to take them a while. You know, everybody's talking about these guys, you know, Markel Fultz. I mean, you know, it's going to take him a while. You know, it's, it's not that easy. You're just there every once in a while you get a LeBron James or a Tim Duncan who immediately makes an incredible impact. But most of these kids, it's going to take them a few years. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Equifax breach that impacted roughly 143 million consumers just got bigger. They've now added 2.5 million people to that list. If that's not bad enough, Yahoo announced that their 2013 breach impacted all 3 billion user accounts, triple the original estimate. You should know once your personal information has been exposed, it doesn't just go away. Identity thieves can buy your info on the dark web for months, even years after a breach. They can use it to commit crimes in your name, even steal from your 401k. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. 
But LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes. That's Forbes for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Hello, Dick Enberg here, and I'm mighty excited to announce the start of my new show, Sound of Success, right here on Podcast One. For 60 years, I've rubbed shoulders with sports greatness, from athletes in the world of football, baseball, college, and professional basketball, golf, tennis, the Olympics, and so much more. Join me as I explore in-depth stories from the greatest figures in the world of sport, and I'll share a few of my own. Download new episodes of Sound of Success every Thursday. Thursday on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, and PodcastOne.com. Oh, my. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. <laughs> Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. David, the dollars are so big in the NBA uh, right now. In terms of having, uh, in, perhaps encouraging college players to stay in school longer, would you advocate something like, for instance, if not paying them a salary, allowing them to perhaps control their marketing rights, their endorsement deals while they're in college? So at least, you know, it's not a burden on the school, and at least uh, these young guys can, can make a little bit of money. Yeah, there's certainly some solution in there. Um, it's, it's inherently unfair, right? Because if I go to uh, Duke or Kansas, that's a different value proposition, Hmm. right? And so if you give the kids some, or or in football, if I go to Alabama or, you know, uh, know, Florida State or something, that's a different value proposition. Um, Even then, you know, something like you go go to an A&M or, or, you know, uh, Purdue or something, it's, uh, Alabama can support you know, maybe even paying their, their kids some. But how many schools can, right? There's 40, 40, 50 schools that really make money. And then there's, a, you know, 1,200 that don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, 1,200 trying to keep up and running fast as they can, trying to figure out the system. So it, it, there's, there's, there's got to be some balance in there where you can allow the kids – I mean, you allow other college students to go out and make money, and if they have an opportunity, they go make money. They go do what they do best. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you, you shouldn't be able to take away um, a kid's avenue to make that money. And maybe, maybe you put it in a trust fund. Maybe you put it on the side until they get out of college. I don't know what the, the solution is, but, but there's got to be some medium in there. The year you win your second NBA title, you decide to retire. And I think right after that, the NBA – named its award that it gives to the player who has the best community service. They name it after you, the David Robinson plaque. I was wondering who told you about it. How did, how did you find out, and how did, you, how did it make you feel? Yeah, well, David Stern told me, um, told me about it, and, and, that, and that's, that's, it was incredible. You know, thinking about, um, you know, the honor of having your name on a trophy, right? Like, what, what would you want to represent? Right. We were at the thing last night. It was the Bill Russell MVP trophy. Right. That's a pretty cool deal. Right. Like Bill Russell. And that's the the MVP thing. Um, You know, in my mind, having my name on the community service award is is the best. Like if I was going to put my name on anything, that's what I would put it on. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, it hopefully it inspires and encourages people to 
be, to, to look at their communities as a part of their business, right? A part of their opportunity. I, mean, I played basketball. I ran up and down the court and, you know, dunked a basketball. That's, that, that means nothing to anybody. But at the end of the day, if I can use that platform to really make lives better, if I can use that platform to impact the, the city of San Antonio. I mean, we, over the years, you know, we, we were able to start, uh, we started a school called the Carver Academy and we built we, we grew it, and here, here we are now, 18 years later, 17, 18 years later, and we're part of a charter school system. We have, we're opening up six new schools this fall. We'll have 20 new schools, 8,000 kids, and over the last 12 years, we've sent every single graduate to college. I mean, it's an amazing deal. So, you know, to, thank you, to, to, to use your platform in a way that really, that truly impacts people's lives. I mean, this last, this last year, I went down to the Valley. We have a, a 20 schools down in the Rio Grande Valley, about you know, 15,000 students. And, um, and I went to the graduation in San Juan. And you drive through far Texas, and the kids that go to this school come from this, this little barrio, and, um, Every single one of these kids walked across the stage and held up their banner on what, universe, what university. And over half of them were first in their family to go to college. And you could see that this, was, this is a transformative thing, right? Like you're making a difference, a real tangible difference in these people's lives. Um, and you're giving these kids hope and a new vision that they, that they never had. And, um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing that, that this basketball game gave me a platform to be able to help in that way. It's, it's just tremendous. Education such a big issue, obviously. What, what do you feel, especially with this uh, experience with Carver, some of the misperceptions, perhaps, that are out there about education, what makes for a good school, what enables kids to graduate and go on and have very successful lives? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, probably, you know, probably the biggest thing is that... Um, <laughs> I'd say number one, throwing money at it isn't the, the solution, right? Like, <laughs> what I believe, it may not be the truth, but what I believe is that character is a big part of teaching. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so all this, when we started Carver, we started as a faith-based school because I felt like if you kids don't know where you come from, if you don't know who you are, then why are you doing what you're doing? Like, I'm in the NBA, I'm watching these guys, I'm watching families fall apart every single year. Because guys making a lot of money don't know how to go home to their wives. It's crazy. To me, that's crazy. You got a beautiful wife at home, and you don't go home? Like, what are you doing? Like, that's, that's, the, that's the biggest measure of you as a man. Well, this is your legacy. This is what you're going to leave behind. I got my son, David Jr., here, and he's my oldest son, and, and he is my legacy. Like, he's lived in my house. Now he's out. Glad to be out, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but he's out now, and, and like for 20, 21 years, he, he was there learning from me, watching and trying to, you know, figure out what his path was going to be. And what he does is what I'm holding on to right, as my legacy. That's, that's part of who I am. Like, so what message am I sending to my kids when I'm saying, yeah, well, you know, me and your wife, me and your mom, we really tried to work it out, but, you know, it just didn't work. Like, what? What do you mean it just didn't work? Like, what? What do you mean? 
Like, you, didn't you get married to her? Didn't you tell her at one point that you were going to be with her for the rest of your life? You made that promise? So what good is any word you say to me now? You made a promise to her that you were going to be with her for the rest of your lives. And you broke that promise. What does that mean to me as your child? So that's a strong statement, right? Like, that's, but we, we don't always see it that way. And, and so to me, character really does matter. And, and I think that that's the part of education, that you've got to have leaders that portray that character. The kids have to see it. They have to see it in their teachers. They have to see it in the leaders of their school. They have to hear it every day. In, in, you know, in our school, it was we have six pillars, leadership, initiative, integrity, faith, service, discipline. Those things were very important. We made the kids memorize scriptures that were associated with each of those scriptures, with each of those, those pillars. And, and that just becomes a part of you, right? Integrity, the Proverbs 10 and 9, the man of integrity walks securely. He doesn't look around. He's not worried about what's going to happen because guess what? I told the truth yesterday. Chase me down today. I don't care because I told the truth. So, you know, the man of integrity walks securely. So just teaching these kids about what service is and and why that's an important part of every aspect of our lives, right? Leadership, what is that, right? Right? Leadership is, 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 is putting people in a position where they can be successful. That's true leadership. And so getting them to understand all of these different pillars, to me, I thought was every bit as important as what we were teaching them in that classroom. And, and I think that's part of what allowed us to have initial success. And then now as a charter school, you know, we've had to t- obviously take the, the faith component and back it out in, a, in a after school and surrounding school programs because a lot of the families that came to our school wanted that. But in a charter school situation, you can't make that a part of your mandatory school day. So we still try to provide opportunities for our, our, our kids to really grow in that way and to support the families that want that. Um, but, but we still have, you know, our pillars. We still have, you know, our value system that, you know, you, these are the important things. Man, this is what you need to know. Before we get to some questions, uh, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit, please, David, how you take and took these values and use them in the Admiral Capital Group and, and in your business endeavors. Yeah, to me, the, the, my business career is just an extension of what basketball was for me because basketball was a great avenue, and it was a ton of fun. I loved playing basketball. There's no, make no mistake about it. It was great. But, but that's not who I am. It's just what I did. And so I wanted to use that as an opportunity to do great things in the community. And, and you know, we were fortunately able to leverage that and, and do some wonderful things. But when, basketball, when my career came to an end, I didn't want my capacity to Im- in- impact communities to come to an end. And so, you know, previously when I was in the military, I did construction, con- contract management, helped the government, you know, build facilities on new bases, um, and, and so, you know, real estate was kind of more of a natural thing for me. And, and um, while I was playing, um, you know, Dan Baskis is my business partner. He was at Goldman. Um, and, uh, you know, he became just a, a really good partner for me in the, on the philanthropic side. And he had such a passion to increase what we were doing. He was a perfect business partner to get involved with. And so that's, that's how Admiral Capital came about. And basically, we tithe out of our our returns, um, you know, our investors, obviously, they don't, they don't have to participate, but, but our owners, um, including USAA, who is a, our biggest investor, 
takes to we take 10% and we're committed to using that 10% in the communities where we're investing. And so that to me it's a it's just a long-term value proposition that, you know, just like with the Spurs, there's a value there, right? Everybody knows what the character of the team is and they know what we're about. Um, that's how Admiral Capital, I want us to build to that place where we have the culture and we have, you know, everyone knows what we are about and, and wants to do business with, with us or doesn't want to do business with us specifically for that reason. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hey, my name is James Petrogallo. I'm Jimmy Westman. Please join us every single Tuesday for Crime in Sports. So fun. You like sports? You don't have to. Let's just set up a context and find out what an idiot did wrong. What I do like you say? It. I'm in. We're going to do that each and every week. We take an athlete, we break him down, we make fun of everything he's ever done. Yeah. But in order to do that, we have to build up and tell you all about their career and get you to what, James? To grace. grace. And That's then right. watch them fall from grace Who as they inevitably like do. Join us. Big criminals, small criminals, sports you've never heard of. Doesn't matter. It's the crime. It's the comedy. It's such a good time. Join us every Tuesday for Crime in Sports. You can join us every Tuesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on all Apple products. Find us every Tuesday and laugh at people. Your beard is how you distinguish yourself. And using Cremo beard products is how you distinguish your beard. From beard wash and scruff cream to revitalizing oils and styling balm, each is designed to soothe, soften, and relieve the itch for any stage of beard growth. So whether it's short and scruffy or long and glorious, your beard will always look and feel its best. Cremo Beard Products. Beard boldly at Walmart, Target, CVS Pharmacy, Rite Aid, Walgreens, and on Amazon. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.